Welcome to Missing Persons Uncovered. I'm Caroline Humer, a child protection expert, and in this podcast series, we seek to understand the complexities of a global issue. Every year, hundreds of thousands of people go missing worldwide. I'm Karen Shalev-Green, and I carry out research into missing persons at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. Across this series, Caroline and I are talking to professionals to share insights into how we can all be more aware and take action to protect vulnerable people in our communities and families from going missing. In this episode, Karen talks to Jeff Newis, who has spent his career in missing persons from homicide investigations to research as well as search and rescue. He has also spent time supporting families of missing persons when working with the charity Missing People. He has conducted numerous research into the subject and specifically on highlighting the risk men have of going missing when on a night out. There's a sort of tendency to think, well, men can look after themselves if it comes to it. That's where we see what are mainly accidents happening because people are in a very vulnerable state. They are impaired and they sort of end up in it on routes home that pose a real danger. Welcome to this episode, and I'm very excited that this time we've got Jeff Newis, and we're going to be talking about missing on a night out. Many people are not familiar with the term, so Jeff and I will be talking about what the term means and some prevention strategies to keep people safe. I remember going back to 1997 and starting work on missing persons. I I do remember cases of people going missing on a night out. I remember media reports of that kind of disappearance. And I particularly remember conversations with a serving police officer at the time who was a a lead investigator on a case of a man who went missing on a night out. It did exist, but it didn't exist as a category in the missing persons world like Young Runaways was seen as a a subset of missing persons. And over the years, we started to talk about child sexual exploitation as an overlapping subset within the missing persons world. And I think if you go back to the Home Office criteria, I think that was 1994, it very much focused on the, the personal characteristics of people who go missing, which might make them vulnerable. So we talked about very young missing people, children. We talked about the elderly and infirm, about people with drugs and alcohol problems, people with mental health problems, for example. And at the end of that vulnerability career, there was a a sort of catch-all, which was people who've disappeared in circumstances which give concern for their safety or something to that effect. And I think I always had an interest in that last category as You know, in some cases, it would be very obvious that these circumstances would suggest that somebody was in real trouble. But I always had this hunch that there were probably some circumstances of a disappearance that perhaps would indicate something to be really quite wrong, but was just not really recognised by the police and not recognised by researchers. So I think it was only really when I did the research or when this pocket of of missing persons came about quite accidentally in a much larger study of fatality that it was almost that sort of eureka moment that we've got a really discernible grouping we've got a really discrete pocket of disappearances that are almost sort of defined by the circumstances of the disappearance most of what we still talk about in terms of 
risk assessment is based on personal characteristics rather than circumstances. I think there are some big messages in this for the police, and that's really about taking note of the likelihood of fatality. So not just sort of sitting back and thinking, oh, he'll he'll return, he'll be fine. You know, there's something about taking action straight away so that you maximise the chances of finding a body, sad as that will obviously be. For people who are, are not familiar with the subject area, what does missing on a night out actually mean? If you can give us an example or just a definition from your perspective, how do you explain what that term means? I think this term has evolved. It's one of those where I didn't set out with this sort of perfectly crisp definition, which is what you're kind of meant to do in the research field. It, It evolved through looking at many, many cases. And I think some cases are pretty obvious. If you have a young man that goes to a few bars in a city centre and goes to a nightclub and simply doesn't return home, then I think most people would agree that that's a night out. I think there are there are plenty of grey areas. What about the, the person that goes for a, just a couple of drinks in the local pub in a very residential area and then doesn't make it home? Is that a sort of big enough occasion to be a night out? And... And I suppose at the other end of the spectrum, just thinking about the cases that I've looked at, you know, what about nights out that actually don't end in the night? They go on all the way through the night until the following morning. They're perhaps outdoor events. Does that constitute a a night out? We did tie it down a bit in, in the research report. and It draws on the importance of alcohol consumption environments and episodes that at least start as, as disappearances after a sort of a socialising event of some description. But it is quite broad, and I think actually there's value in that. I think it has a, a meaning to police officers and searchers based on their, their experience rather than some sort of really pinned-down researchy definition. And do you, do you think that this is primarily or exclusively linked with alcohol, or... Is there any inclusion of drugs, for example, of any other substance use that people might consume during socialising out with friends, with colleagues? There certainly is an involvement of drugs. I mean, sometimes it's hard to tell exactly what substances a person has consumed, particularly when you're dealing with those who are found dead. And that might be after quite some time since they went missing. But clearly from, from looking at the, the circumstances of the disappearance, the vast majority had certainly consumed alcohol. And in many cases, they were severely impaired at the time they were last seen. They, they were certainly under the influence of alcohol. And some were certainly under the influence of quite a range of recreational drugs as well. So I think it does reflect that sort of wider culture, and particularly most young people, I suspect, that the wider culture of going out, having a good time, involves alcohol at the very least, and sometimes other substances as well. So you touch on the demographics, and I'd like to help our listeners understand a little bit more about this group. Who is likely to be affected by this? Because I'm going out with my friend to have a few drinks and if something happens is that likely to be within our age group what does it mean is it simply the criteria of alcohol or drug consumption 
and or age range, gender, who is likely to be affected? I think this is a conversation I've had with many people over the years, actually, and it really relates to risk and and to sort of perceptions of risk as well. Because when you do the kind of work I do, and, and I talk about the really the most extreme cases, there is a tendency for them to be sort of picked up on and highlighted. I mean, the simple fact is that on any day of the week, but certainly on Friday and Saturday night in the UK, there are going to be hundreds of thousands uh, of people of all ages, really, but certainly young people who are going on a night out. You know, the chances of them being A, reported missing and B, reported missing and then later found to have died are few and far between. Most people are going to make it home safely. We know there are risks, of course, to going out. We know that there are assaults. There might be sexual assaults. There is there is drug and alcohol-related harm. There's even murder. But most of those don't involve somebody going missing. So I'm dealing with really quite a, a small and specific pocket of social phenomenon, I suppose. When you look at that, and I should say at the outset, I've all of my research has been on men, and that kind of happened in an accidental way. Looking at those cases of men who have gone on a night out, have been reported missing, and then have been found later to have died. Roughly half are aged 21 or under, and that rises to something like 70% when you look at 25 or under. So we have a decent majority are what you would call young people. Having said that, I think another interesting point here is when you look at the range of ages, it actually extends from 16 years old. And of course, there's questions there about breaking the law and alcohol consumption, what have you, and parenting, I suppose, as well. Right up to 62 years old, I think, is the oldest person that I discovered in, in this set and again i think there's some interesting points here here and, and drinking behavior and particularly amongst let's say middle-aged to older middle-aged people this crosses over with another thing which is about the time of year when people go missing because a lot are happening over the christmas period and i can think of quite a few cases where say middle-aged men 40s 50s have gone on a christmas works night out and i think perhaps have drunk a lot more than they would normally do. And that's probably what's got them into trouble. And I think that, in a sense, when you think about there's probably fewer people of that age actually going on a big Saturday night out. What can be a sort of foolish episode in August with somebody ending up getting a bit wet and, and being teased by their friends for the next few weeks? That very same incident becomes a tragedy when it happens in January. And, and that's the real simple truth is that alcohol with freezing cold temperatures is just an absolute recipe for disaster. And it's it's something that you, you might well get away with in the middle of the summer. But it just becomes an awful lot more unforgiving when, when it happens in winter. As women, we have been taught to always stay in pairs or groups when we go out at night. Men do not instinctively do the same. Is this an additional risk to men? No idea on what the base rate is for women and to a certain degree men. And by that, I mean, how many are going to go missing and actually come back safe and well? My hypothesis is that you'd actually see more safe and well returns amongst women than you would amongst men. So the pool of of women going missing on night out would be bigger, but you'd probably have, have a small number, just as you do with the men, that are fatalities. So the risk, I suspect, would overall be lower. 
But the one thing I think we were pretty clear about is that if you are dealing with a fatality of a woman, then you're going to have a very different set of scenarios that you're looking at. I always sort of go back to what is happening on any night of the week. There are, there are people going out in groups, they get separated and nothing happens. It's no big deal. That's, that is kind of the norm. I'm looking at the exceptional cases. But your point here about people ending up on their own and being separated in groups, that really stands out from the research that I've done. Maybe that's something going on with the level of alcohol consumption with Groups of mainly young people bumping into other groups of young people and people getting a bit confused about where their friends are exactly and whether they've gone off with somebody else or have they just taken a taxi home. These situations can become confusing and it's not entirely clear where people are. I, I do think there's a general thread of truth there that in the main women you would expect probably would perhaps look out for each other a bit more there's that sense of we've come out together we're going home together we, we look after each other for men I do think that's a reasonable assumption that there's a there's a sort of tendency to think well men can look after themselves if it comes to it that's where we see what are mainly accidents happening because people are in a very vulnerable state they are impaired and they sort of end up in it on routes home that pose a real danger. We acknowledge that this is a small proportion from the get-go, but how small or how large is it? Because there's a quite a nice proportion of the population that fits that age group, fits the, the profile of people going on a night out. So how many do you think end up disappearing, whether it comes into a fatality or not? That's still a really hard question to answer, actually. I got data from one force, and it was on relatively small numbers on people who had gone missing on a night out, but actually being found okay. It was less than 100. I think that element of the research is... It's certainly the one that I would love to do again with a much larger sample of cases. But the truth is, I still don't think any police forces have a code on their information systems for missing on a night out. So if you go back to what I said at the beginning, that it's becoming a thing, it's becoming a category. It still hasn't got to that stage yet where it's it's influencing the way mispers are cordial systems, which is a shame. But I would imagine that it's not that uncommon. It's the fatality that's uncommon. So I've looked at nearly nine years worth of data over, over two separate studies. And it basically averages out that you'd expect to see around about 15 to 20 deaths of men who have been on a night out and been reported missing a year. Now, of course, that's going to be a tiny, tiny proportion of all men who are going on a night out. But nonetheless, it's 15 to 20 deaths that are very real tragedies for, for everybody concerned. Uh, and I think that takes you into the sort of preventative angle about staying safe. But it also has really big implications for the way the police see these cases, the way the police respond, the way they think about the risk posed to somebody in these circumstances, and particularly for the way they respond in terms of search strategies. Do you want to explain a little bit more about the gender differences? Because you mentioned that there's gender differences there. What are they? I've done a lot of work on men. And essentially, it's sometimes difficult to know when we have unknown cause of death cases. But essentially, the vast majority look like accidents. And, and that's kind of what we'd expect. I think I knew from my very early work on homicide and, and missing persons, I, I just knew from case examples that there were 
cases of women who were last seen on the night out who who had gone missing and been found dead but actually every case that I could think of they were murdered they were abducted or at least you know attacked in a in a relatively remote area and very sadly killed and I think my working hypothesis was always that if we ever were to get hold of a data set of female missing on a night out fatalities that we would expect to see a lot more murders there have been some attempts to get that kind of data and it really bears out what i'm saying there are still accidents and i can think of a number of case studies from recent years of women who have gone missing on a night out in pretty much the same circumstances that i'm describing for the men and have had an accident which usually involves falling into water which we'll we'll come on to but certainly you would expect to see more homicide which is true for all fatality missing persons, homicide is the only category of fatal missing persons where you see more women than men. Everything else is 80% male fatalities. It's, it's the homicide where you get quite a different pattern. Do you think there are likely to be cultural differences? So obviously in countries where there's far less alcohol consumption due to faith and so on, we are less likely to see that. However, in other cultures where there is still alcohol consumption and drug consumption, do you think patterns are likely to be similar, different, any any sense? I've had many, many conversations with both missing person judges at, at conferences and what have you. I, I, I went to the Australian Federal Police Conference a few years ago and we talked about similarity in, in, in perhaps drinking culture and, and it would be Great to do a study there. I think there are important geographical differences in some cases. Britain, you're never too far from a river, a lake, a canal, or the sea, of course, in the UK. And that can be different in in other countries. But certainly from a cultural perspective, I think there are similarities. I speak to my wife about this because she's Italian. I think certainly traditionally the assumption is that in some of the Mediterranean countries, people are a little more restrained in their alcohol consumption that they perhaps wouldn't expect to to see this phenomenon but all of that needs testing really i think the other interesting part of this you see quite a lot of examples of uk nationals dying in these circumstances on a night out being reported missing you see it happening overseas i can think of plenty of cases where where that's happened and whether that would be reflected in the overall population of, of those countries i i don't know or is it or is it sort of disproportionately affected by uk nationals coming over and having a big night out jeff has already mentioned that many men going missing on a night out are linked to water he shares what his research has found i was involved in a study whilst i was at the the charity missing people and i looked at 186 disappearances that were recorded by police and of those 186, you know, a lot of them were suicides, of course, and, and there, were, there were a few homicides, for example. But there was this distinct pocket of 17 men who were on a night out who were all found in water. And that was really the whole genesis of this research. It was, it was really quite compelling as a researcher. When you see a pattern like that, you think, whoa, that's, that's incredible. What, they've all come to the same end. They all shared the same kind of outcome. And that's really what got me hooked on this. I started collecting details of cases from media reports in my own time. I, I left the charity Missing People 
And it really just became this thing that I did. I just kept hold of case studies that I found in the media. I, I later went on to do a bit of work with the, the missing persons unit and, and sort of formalised this data collection a little bit more and ended up with a data set of originally 96 cases. And that eventually became 150 when we extended the time period. But 85% of them were found dead in water. That on its own, I think, is really quite a striking finding. It's very rare that you get that level of consistency in our world of missing persons. And clearly it has immediate implications for search. It does cover, even within that phrase, in, in water, it covers a whole range of different things. So it could be somebody falling into a river, a canal, and lakes, docks, marinas, keys. You can have people who are found out in the sea or sort of washed up on the beach. It's quite a, a broad range, but I think the common finding with all of this is people falling and then falling into water. So let's sort of think about or think a little bit when a court comes in to police saying my loved one has gone missing, the call taker takes on the information that there was drinking probably, they were out and about. What are the initial challenges that police then face in these particular cases? This is actually the single most important contribution of this research, is simply highlighting the, the very real chance that you're dealing with something that probably runs contrary to your initial thoughts as an investigator and I can think of one really good example of this I'm not going to name the force it was from quite some time ago but the force had a call from a mum whose son hadn't come home and the investigator essentially said to her don't worry I'm sure he's shacked up with a lovely young lady and he'll be back soon and I just I, I don't think that was probably that unusual there was a sense that he'd be okay it's fine and and part of me can see the logic of that. When you go back to the, the old vulnerability criteria, well, where does a, a fit and healthy 21-year-old man with all his life ahead of him and no apparent problems in his personal life, where does that person fit into this sense of being vulnerable? Of course, you probably wouldn't take that view for a female. But I think the main thing we've done with this research is, is say to police, look, there is a very real likelihood that you're dealing with something that isn't sweet and innocent and it isn't going to involve just somebody coming home having been a little bit late. There has been sort of initial awareness from the police of the risk involved. It comes back to this idea that what would be your natural perception of a, a fit and healthy young man who's gone missing on night out? You probably wouldn't raise the alarm bell straight away and start putting dive teams into rivers. It might be something that, that investigators actually find hard to justify. When the police need to put specialist resources in, that, that, it costs money. They have to justify the case. And I think one of the benefits of this research is saying, hang on a minute, there's a very high likelihood that we're going to be dealing with a tragic outcome here. And it will be made even more tragic if we don't respond appropriately and actually that the family and loved ones are left waiting essentially forever. I think the one thing you can pretty convincingly say, just from looking at the cases, is that once a, a disappearance lasts 48 hours, and certainly once it's gone past 72 hours, 
the chances of a missing man being found alive plummets to practically zero. When you compare that to the wider field of missing persons and fatality, we just don't get those kind of results. There's always lots of ifs and wherefores and, you know, there's, there's complicating factors. In the very small and specific world of missing on a night out, if a man is still missing after 72 hours, you're highly, highly likely to be dealing with fatality. You mentioned about the call taker and the investigative response. I think that to me is the number one contribution that this research has made is it's kind of turning the alarm bells on. It's like, hang on a minute, this very well could be a tragedy. And when you link that back to the finding about water, it has very real implications for for the search strategy and for our confidence in actually finding the body. I mentioned earlier you'd expect to see 15 to 20 fatal cases a year. Sadly, for those 15 or 20 cases, we'd probably also expect to see at least one, possibly two, which are just never resolved. They just remain missing for years and years and years. And that's a huge proportion because the vast majority of cases are resolved within the year. 99%, in fact, are resolved within the year. When you have a group where you say 15 to 20 people are likely to come to such a fatality and that one or two of those may just not be resolved, that, that is a huge proportion. For people listening from other countries where there isn't that vicinity to water, should they consider looking at cases where people have gone on a night out, for example, and to see whether they are more likely to fall from heights or what other possibility of harm would there be? This actually became one of my secondary interests, actually, after that initial point about the high likelihood of fatality. Once I realised that safe 15% of these are going to be found on land cases. As a researcher, my instinct is always, is there any way in which we could profile those cases? How could you tell at the early stage whether you face an increased chance of somebody being found on land as opposed to being in water? We're dealing with very small numbers. The perfect way to do this would be to do the research over a lot longer period when you've got, say, 100 found on land cases and you can really do some more reliable work and and maybe other countries could take that up too. You see quite distinct patterns in those small number of cases. You mentioned falling from a height and that's certainly one thing that I saw in the 150 cases that I've looked at. Along this journey of doing the research I, I teamed up with Ian Greatbatch who I met originally at Kingston University and latterly at Portsmouth. He's a geographer and I could map this out and look at the geographical properties of the disappearances was really helpful. The one thing that we found was that if you're planning for an 85% chance of somebody being found in water, there is a period of time when you're going to be waiting and you're going to be waiting on specialist underwater search resources and that takes time and it takes money and it takes organisation. Actually, the one thing that you can do in the immediate area where somebody was last seen is you can consider are there any locations, are there any bridges or buildings where somebody may have got to, where they may have fallen from and then their body would have lied in a place that wasn't obvious to a passerby or is in some way concealed. We sort of put that in the report, actually. This is a, it's almost like a sort of contingency search thing that, if you're if you're waiting to do the water, then there are certain things you can do in the immediate vicinity 
that in some cases you you will get results. On the other hand, found on land, again, it goes off in many different directions. Some of these involve very large distances, people traveling on foot for many, many kilometers. There are some cases where people died of hypothermia. And I know from case studies, that's certainly something that has happened. I can certainly think of a few cases in the States where people have been drinking in a bar and then finally have been found to have died of hypothermia. Uh, Again, I think armed with more cases, that's something we could look at from a geographical perspective. What are the search implications when you're looking for somebody who you suspect may have succumbed to hypothermia? We always want to give listeners tools to think of prevention and good examples of good practice to take away. In terms of prevention strategies, it was one of my greatest joys when you released your report and we did a media campaign and the feedback that we got from search and rescue teams. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Because really, you and Ian deserve the credit. Once the research was published and we had this clear pattern of water being being involved in so many cases, then one thing that was really quite something was the the search and rescue community saying, well, actually, if, if we've got a particular risk around the Christmas period and water, then we should be going out into the rivers and actually patrolling them in, in a preventative way. And I think this is something that, had been done before, but perhaps over the summer months when a lot more people are about. But there certainly were stories. There was one particular year, I think it was 2019, when the first report came out, that a number of search and rescue teams put boats out into rivers where the rivers are known to be close to where people are socialising. And a number of lives were apparently saved. That, to me, is really compelling stuff for the value of, of research. I think it speaks to something about the value of analysis and and uncovering these kind of hidden patterns in missing persons. I think it also talks about the power of communities coming together, of people taking action, and it does save lives for people listening. If this is something you would recognize possibly happening in your own communities, that that's an opportunity to really take action in a relatively simple and in terms of the members of the public, families, whoever is listening, what do you think can we suggest for people to do differently to prevent these tragedies from happening? I never want to overstate the risk with this. People go on, on a night out. There are millions of nights out amongst millions of people all the time in this country. This is not about creating alarm or or panic. But I think there are pretty clear messages which are just about looking after yourself and taking care. If your route home is alongside water, if it's alongside a river or canal, then it's about recognising that accidents do happen and staying clear. Don't put yourself in danger. Do you think it would be fair to suggest to people who go out and drink, particularly men, to stay together as well. If you see your mate properly drunk, don't lose them. Just take them home, put them in a taxi, whatever you can to ensure that they're back safe. Don't make the assumption that, oh, the guy's fine. I I think that might require a bit of a sort of cultural change. I think there's a sort of common sense appeal to that, that of course, let's, let's get people home 
safely and have that kind of surety and confidence that people are back home and safe. I think in a lot of these cases, there there is just confusion and uncertainty about where people are. So I'm not too sure how many times that opportunity would arise when you look at the friend who's a bit worse for wear and you all kind of come together in a sort of a collective of people and say, look, let's be responsible here. Let's put him in a taxi. That should happen. I think the reality of these cases is often what you find is that people just say, oh, I don't know where he is. I, no, I don't. I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. And that opportunity to to do that kind of safe and sensible approach probably just unfortunately didn't actually exist. It's been absolutely fascinating. So thank you very much, Jeff. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Missing Persons Uncovered. And thank you to Jeff for sharing his research on missing on a night out. His research is available online. If you have any questions you would like us to answer or thoughts on topics you would like us to discuss, please contact us through our website. If you'd like specific information or need help, please reach out to your local police department or national charity. If you are enjoying this podcast and discussion, please help support us by buying us a coffee through missingpersonsuncovered.com. I'm Karen Shalev-Green. And I'm Caroline Humer. Thank you for listening. Join us next time when we talk to Kelly Kincaid from Astrea Forensic on the development of forensic technology in identifying unknown missing persons.